you. I, uh, I probably all know. I'm deaf in one ear, which prompts all kinds of awkward situations. Uh, you know, very routinely, I find out somebody's been talking into my right ear for quite a while, and I didn't realize they were talking to me. And probably just seemed really rude. Uh, but uh, it also produced situations where, like, uh, you know, standing there, I can hear out of this ear, and the speaker's right in that ear. Uh, and in that last song, I, I couldn't really hear any of the vocalists on stage. Uh, was, you were very loud, even though you're on the wrong ear. And, uh, you know, when Scripture tells us to sing to one another in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, uh, like, that's exactly what you're talking about. Like, that, that is teaching me that, like, we all cling to the same truths together. Uh, same problem? I'm sorry, I was microphone impaired. I'm hearing impaired and microphone impaired, probably. I'm on 2 1. A beginning of a shift that's going to carry through the rest of the book. And honestly, like when we're thinking about what book do we study next, this is one of the themes in Acts that seems very apropos to me. Certainly, and as uh, in a way, uh, like we've sent out a very large number of people from our church to plant a church, and while our you know our values and our commitments are still the same, like. That will affect some things about the culture of our church. You know, some people that have served in one area for a very long time maybe are now gone. And, like, uh, some of us are going to be uh, participating in new ministries. Like, things are going to change, uh, even if our commitments are the same. And, you know, I thought it would be helpful for us to look at uh, kind of the flow of the early church as we're kind of... Uh, going through some change ourselves, but I think additionally in Acts, and beginning in chapter 4, you start to see an opposition narrative, and I think probably uh, most of us have the sense that uh, our context, uh, our society is increasingly hostile to Christianity, and it seems appropriate uh, maybe that we also address that fact. So, Uh, As we step into Acts chapter 4 this morning, we're going to see a group that we haven't really seen yet in Acts, and this group is going to be kind of, at least through chapter 7, kind of the primary antagonists for the church, the people who are seeking to oppose uh, the work, and the resistance starts with an interrupted sermon. In chapter 3, Peter was preaching in the wake of the healing of the man at the temple, and uh, a group kind of interrupts Peter's sermon, and everything in chapter 4 is what happens kind of right after that interruption. So I'd like to read the text with you this morning and then pray together. Uh, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. 
And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. <coughs> Excuse me. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of David our father, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the grace of Christ. Lord, we thank You for extending to us salvation in Him. And Lord, uh, as has been prayed already this morning, God, we pray that You would humble our hearts, that we would be quick to recognize our sin. Lord, we ask that You would... uh, quicken our hearts, Lord, that you would sharpen our minds, Lord, that we would be further confirmed, conformed to the image of the Son as we submit to your word now. And Lord, we pray that as we see the ways in which your grace worked out in the life of the early church, Lord, that our church would be further molded towards Christ-likeness, God, that we as individuals would be transformed by your grace, that we as a body would be transformed by your grace, and that our life together as a family would continue to draw others to the power of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in us as we are uh, transformed by your grace from one degree of glory to another. Lord, we pray all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, so uh, I want to take, I guess, what some people affectionately call a nerd moment and give you a little bit of background that I think might be helpful. It might just me be being a nerd. Uh, who can say? Uh, right? But uh, if you are familiar with the book of Luke, we see a group often in Luke, the Pharisees, and like because we don't uh, know much about these people, I think sometimes in a lot of our minds they all just kind of get lumped together. But in order to understand, I guess, why the opposition falls so hard in Acts, I think we need to understand who the Sadducees are and be clear that, like, while they have a lot of things in common with the Pharisees, they are not the Pharisees that we know from the book of Luke, right? So, uh, where the Pharisees very uh, eagerly advocated for very strict adherence to their interpretation of the law— and recognized basically we all of what we call the Old Testament as authoritative, uh, and were a very popular group. They were kind of the the group of the common people in Israel. Uh, probably most people would have had more sympathy with the Pharisees. The Sadducees are a minority group, uh, a pretty small group, primarily composed of people who historically had power kind of in the temple system and kind of the religious oversight of Israel. These would have been people who uh, certainly were Levitical in background and probably had a family history of maybe serving as a high priest or some other high position in the temple uh, or potentially Jewish nobility, right? Like they were kind of the elite, uh, powerful people. Uh, but they, they taught a couple things that were very different than what the Sadducees teach, and one of those things is very much why uh, they strongly oppose this growing church. Uh, the first thing they said was that basically the authority of God was in the first five books of our Bible, the books of Moses, they said, and because they really didn't recognize uh, as primarily authoritative a lot of the rest of the Old Testament, they also taught that there was no general resurrection. Uh, where Pharisees thought that there was going to be a resurrection at the end of time, 
these guys, the Sadducees, would have said there's definitely not a general resurrection, right? And so kind of from the outset, if you know that, uh, a growing church is a huge problem for Sadducees, right? They are in position of wealth. They have authority. They kind of helped lead the charge to see Jesus murdered, and then Jesus was resurrected, and they're telling everybody resurrection doesn't happen, right? So if the church doesn't die, everything about Sadduceeism is kind of being undermined, right? So uh, it's in these guys' interest very much to see everybody forget Jesus' name and the church uh, be swept into the dustbin of history, right? So as Peter and John are preaching in the wake of the healing that we saw in chapter 3, uh, these guys come, and the text, uh, like it, it says, the ESV translate, came upon them, like, the, like descended upon them. You know, like they, they came with intent, and Luke further says that they were greatly annoyed, uh, not only uh, by what was being said, probably, but also by the guys who are teaching, right? Like, we're the guys in power. We're the ones who get to invest people with the authority to teach. We have not authorized these guys to teach. And not only have we not authorized these guys to teach, everything that they're saying is wrong. Jesus is not the Messiah. There is no resurrection. You know, like, they, they don't like anything about what is happening. And so they've come to stop it. And so they arrest Peter and John. They take them into custody uh, in the... Uh, they'll go to the temple or into uh, the temple jail, uh, but because it's so late in the day, they can't put them on trial that day, and so they stay overnight in the jail. And then Luke kind of inserts an editorial note to make it clear that even though we're seeing this first opposition to the church spring up, that the church's growth is continuing unabated, right? Like the Church was introduced to us in the book of being about 120 people, then 3,000 people, and now uh, it's at least 5,000 people. I say at least because the Greek here is not really clear. He could be saying uh, he could be saying there are 5,000 people, but he might be, or even probably, is saying there's 5,000 men, as in 5,000 heads of household. Like that, it's grown substantially. Like 5,000 men plus their wives plus their kids. The church is getting huge, but whether it's 5,000 or 20,000 at this point, uh, like mathematically, this has been ex exponential growth in a very short amount of time since Pentecost, and uh, kind of, I think, further why the Sadducees or the Sanhedrin are so concerned. I guess I probably should mention that as well. So sometimes we say the word Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin is an official court, kind of like the Supreme Court, religious court of Israel. There are local Sanhedrins, but this Sanhedrin in Jerusalem is the Sanhedrin for all Jews. It would be composed of 71 individuals, uh, some Pharisees, some Sadducees, right? Like there's, there's a mixed bag, but primarily probably Sadducees, and several of them Luke introduces here. Uh, the Sanhedrin comes together, so with them are Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander. And I, I had mentioned uh, once before, earlier in the text, Acts has a lot of historical details, and some of those historical details, I think, are sometimes used as uh, 
proof that the Bible contains some error, and actually there is one right here. And I think I would like to equip you kind of as we go through the book of Acts, pointing out things that people say, well, see, there's a, a misstatement in the Bible or that's not true, and explain why uh, ultimately this isn't some kind of contradiction in the Bible or some kind of false statement in the Bible. Luke introduces Annas as the high priest, but we know but for a fact that Annas is not the high priest at this time. Caiaphas is the high priest. But to understand what Luke is saying, I think you need to understand who all these guys are. Caiaphas is the high priest. He ser- had been serving as a high priest for a long time, and he would serve as a high priest for know, five or ten more years after this happens. Annas is Caiaphas's father. Annas was, is kind of notorious as a high priest because he accumulated an incredible amount of political power to the point that he could assure, even after his term as high priest ended, I forget if it's five or six of his sons, served as high priest after him, like consecutively, and ultimately then his son-in-law serves and his grandson serves, right? So everybody uh, that knows anything about Israel at the time knows, like, well, at this point, uh, who is the high priest is kind of like just a technicality. Annas is the high priest. Like, Annas is acting as the high priest through his sons. And so Luke is, I guess... Uh, pointing out to people who would probably already know this, that, like, remember, this isn't just any Sanhedrin. This is, like, a notoriously bad Sanhedrin with an incredible amount of political power, and all of these guys have decided that Peter and John need to stop, right? And so this is the situation Peter and John find themselves in. They are standing in front of a Sanhedrin that is especially opposed to their work, and unquestionably has a lot of power. And they step into this room where these 71 individuals would have been seated on elevated seats in a semicircle around Peter and John, right? So they, like, step into the room, uh, and, like, before anything's even said, I'm sure they can feel the opposition against them. I first hour, like, when I was being ordained, our elders invited some other pastors to, to here, to the library. And I sat on one side of the table, and they all sat on the other side of the table, and they grilled me for a while, <laughs> like, making sure that uh, I, uh, I was firmly convicted in the scriptures, right? And the point of an ordination council like that is they are trying to get you to trip up. They're trying to to get you to state some error. And, uh, you know, all the guys on the other side of the table were people that I consider friends, but we all knew what the point of the night was. Like, they want to make sure that I'm not accidentally or intentionally holding some theological error, so they're grilling me. And, like, even though I love those guys, it was very intimidating to, like, have men who I consider to be much smarter than I am sitting on the other side of the table trying to, like, trick me into stating some kind of theological error, right? But, like, in the end of the day, uh, I like, we're all playing for the same team. These guys love me. That's not the situation that Peter and John are in. These 71 individuals who are going to do all that they can to get these guys to say something blasphemous or something, uh, very much hate them and hate everything that they're about, right? Like, Peter and John are stepping into an absolutely terrifying 
situation, and uh, they open, uh, making it pretty clear what their main concern is. Like, who authorized you to do this, or, or whose power are you operating in? And Peter doesn't hesitate, but quickly responds. Basically, it's almost like he's picking up the sermon that he was preaching that they interrupted. Like, he takes this opportunity to preach to the Sanhedrin. It mind, reminds me of in Philippians where Paul says, like, well, you know, they're going to chain me to Praetorian Guard. I'll preach the gospel to a Praetorian Guard. Like, Peter's got this opportunity to preach to the Sanhedrin. And see, so he opens very clearly, not backing away from anything that he had been saying to the crowds in the city, but emphatically preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, like clearly stating, this guy who is standing right here is healed, miraculously healed, and we all know he's healed, and it's by the name of Jesus Christ. And not only does he make it clear that it's by the power of Christ that this man was healed, but he very directly confronts them with their guilt in the death of Jesus. And more than that, I think uh, he, he makes it clear that the, the salvation from a physical circumstance that this man experienced isn't the limit of Jesus' ability or power, but it's through Jesus Christ that all people are finally saved, or in a spiritual sense, are saved. This Jesus, he says, is the stone that was rejected by you. And this is uh, an allusion to Psalm, actually almost a direct quote from Psalm 118. And I also think, uh, you know, at this point, I think you clearly see some evidence of the grace of Christ in the life of Peter. Uh, I was talking to somebody yesterday and uh, just commenting on, like, the Peter of Luke didn't even really seem to understand the Old Testament all that well. I mean, you could tell he's loosely familiar with it, but doesn't quite get it. Uh, and then Peter in Acts is like a totally different person. And the thing that happens between the Peter we see in Luke and the Peter in Acts is Jesus explains the law and the prophets and the Psalms to the apostles on the road to Emmaus. And after Jesus opens Peter's eyes to the Old Testament in, depending on how you count, uh, this could be his third sermon, right? You have Pentecost sermon, healing sermon, and now before the Sanhedrin sermon. Like, Psalms are woven through everything that he's stating. And here he weaves a psalm in to say, to point out to them clearly their guilt in the murder of Messiah, but making it clear that though they rejected him, he is God's cornerstone, that he is the hope of Israel. And in fact, he says very clearly, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this is, you know, one of those statements and acts, I think, that really crystallizes the message of the early church, right? That it is only through the name of Jesus Christ that a person is saved, that there is no other route to reconciliation with God. And uh, 
there's some difference, I think, in the, the way this would have struck their ears and the way this would strike a person's ear today, right? They, they the people that Peter's addressing, would have heard this and they would have very much disagreed with the fact uh, that Jesus is the way to reconciliation with God, but they would have probably agreed with the fact that there is one way to reconciliation with God. In other words, they don't disagree with the premise of Peter's statement that there's one path to reconciliation with God. They just disagree about the nature of the path, right? But we are living in a time when people would reject the premise of the statement entirely, that there is only one path to God. Like, we live in an age where people are saying there are numerous paths to God, almost an infant. There are as many paths to God as there are people on the earth, right? That, that we have to be clear about this fact, as clear as Peter was on that day, and yet we have to recognize that when we say this, when we proclaim this, that it's probably going to land differently in our audience's ear. And the fact that it lands differently in someone's ear, the fact that we could say this now and someone wouldn't just disagree with us on whether or not it was true, but they might reject whether or not a statement like that could even be made, uh, doesn't change the fact that this is a fact. Like, this is a true statement, whether or not people believe that there are such a thing as true statements. And so, we have to be, I think, abundantly clear, not only in our articulation of this truth, but sensitive to the fact that uh, we have to walk someone to the place where they can understand what is actually being said here. And I think probably it, it does concern me that uh, churches uh, generally uh, in an attempt to be loving or to reflect the grace of God sometimes act like uh, playing the truth of this statement a little more softly or maybe being a little bit less than clear is a way for society to uh, see the church as loving or gracious. And I want to be absolutely clear that we cannot bend on this statement, that it is not gracious or loving to be anything less than truthful. We have to, as a body, be absolutely clear that the only path to reconciliation with God is through Jesus Christ. That stating that truth boldly and plainly is gracious and is loving because it's true. Luke goes on to explain how this lands with the Sanhedrin. And uh, first he tells us that uh, they're, they're a little bit shell-shocked by everything that was just said, right? They, at this point, uh, were probably used to the fact that uh, you shouldn't argue with Jesus because he definitely knows the word better than you do. But Peter and John, like whatever kind of anomaly Jesus was, Peter and John are uneducated Galilean fishermen. 
They haven't been trained in the Torah. They're not literate. Other than Jesus, who they didn't really recognize as a rabbi, they have no training. Like, they shouldn't have the authority to teach. They shouldn't have the ability to teach. Peter and John need to sit down, right? But hearing all this, they're shocked. Like, how could they be doing this? And of course, we understand that they are seeing firsthand the grace of God in Peter and John's life, that God routinely equips believers to do things that they should not be able to do, and that's what they're seeing plainly in front of them. But not recognizing that, uh, they simply think, well, they've been with Jesus. Maybe, Maybe he taught them how to do it. But not only are they teaching with authority the way that Jesus taught with authority, there's still the fact that the man who was in everybody's eyes, crippled at the gate of the temple uh, the two days prior, is now standing there next to him. Right? Like, they can't argue with that, and they can't deny it because everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. Like, the cat's out of the bag on that one, and so they're starting to feel, apparently, a little bit stuck. They have nothing left to say, and so they dismiss Peter and John, and as soon as Peter and John are out of the room, they say, what shall we do with these men? Uh, everybody knows what happened to the man who was healed. Everybody in Jerusalem saw it. There's no way at this point for us to deny what happened. Like, people will know we're just lying. But we can't let them continue. Uh, so, basically, we're going to shut them up, and we don't have to give them a reason. We're just going to command them not to say anything else about Jesus, or to even speak publicly. And so they call them in, and they tell them that. And Peter and John, uh, of course, respond, whether is it right in God's eyes uh, for us to listen to you or for us to obey God, I think you're going to have to decide, but we're choosing to obey God. And uh, this is the first uh, of several times we'll see something like this in Acts, and I I think it's also important that we reconcile this with the rest of what the New Testament says because the New Testament generally exhorts us to one thing and we're kind of seeing, it seems like at first glance, something else here. Everywhere in the New Testament where it's addressed, uh, the Christian is told to uh, maintain a disposition of submission to the government, to respect the authority of the government as uh, instituted by God, that ultimately our submission to the government is submission to the sovereignty of the Lord. Yet in Acts, any time that a government commands a person or persons to do something other than what God clearly commands that person to do, those persons, typically very politely, refuse to do the thing. Right? Like, if I'm forced to choose between what the government is telling me to do and what God is telling me to do, I'm absolutely going to obey God. And I think we'll see that uh, several times in the narrative of Acts, enough to the point uh, we could definitely say there is a pattern uh, that any time the government instructs a person to do something that is contrary to the clear will of God, that person should obey God. But uh, Peter and John are, are basically politely saying, well, Sanhedrin, you've put yourselves right between our consciences and God, and that's not a a safe place for anyone to be. And I uh, 
I would like to say, I certainly grew up in a time where I thought that uh, there's not a chance in uh, Nebraska that I could ever be put into the position that these men were just put into, where they have to choose between obeying their conscience before the Lord and doing what the government's been asking them to do or is asking them to do. And yet, I think it's important whether or not we ever see a day like that, that we are all clear that our responsibility is submission to the government uh, whenever possible, but when the government instructs a person to do something that is contrary to the clear, expressed word of God, that our obligation is to obey God. And the disciples very politely tell the Sanhedrin that very thing, and not knowing what to do with that, they further threaten them, but ultimately let them go. They know that they can't do anything to Peter and John without upsetting the crowd, and maybe somewhat ironically, the very crowd in Jerusalem that they turned against Jesus to see him crucified is now the crowd that is restraining them from stamping out the church. Like, they can't do anything more than they just did, and they know it, and so the, the narrative kind of ends with Peter and John being released, knowing what the chief priests and the scribes want, but having told the chief priests and the scribes, not going to do it. And um, I, by way of conclusion, Luke reminds us of the fact that there was this healing. This is the thing that is really controlling the mood of the crowd. It's not that everybody in Jerusalem is a believer, but everybody knows that this guy was healed, and it was clearly the hand of God at work. In fact, he says, he, was, he adds at this point, he was 40 years old. This is, everybody knows this isn't a guy that uh, broke his leg and they happened to come along just as he was being healed and, and, you know, make it look like they'd done something spectacular. This is a man that hadn't walked for 40 years and everybody knew who he was and that he hadn't walked for 40 years. God was at work and now they are bound. Peter and John, leaving uh, the Sanhedrin, go immediately back to the church that's gathered and probably praying, waiting for them, relates everything that happened between the chief priests and the elders, and the, the church hears it and immediately turns to God in prayer. And uh, very much, uh, they're, they're quoting a psalm here, but... I think there are a couple things about this prayer that we need to note. First, like their situation, right? That they've just been told clearly that they can continue to expect opposition from the people that hold almost all of the power in Jerusalem. And their response isn't to think about what they're about to lose. Their response isn't to think about how, uh, what's their strategy for the next day. Their response is not to think about... Uh, what their hope uh, or how they could escape their present circumstances, their first, their immediate response after everything that happens is to turn to the Lord in prayer. That, like, we continue to see in the face of everything else a church that is absolutely dependent on God and expresses that dependence on God in prayer. But I think what's even more remarkable than the fact that they immediately turn in prayer is the nature of the prayer itself. The, the second thing that I think we should note is they're not just turning to God in prayer, but they're 
turning to God with a very specific sort of prayer. And I think most churches today, if they were faced with the circumstances this church is faced with, might call a prayer meeting, but the prayer meeting would sound an awful lot like, God, you know, please help us to escape these present circumstances. God, please don't let things get as difficult as they seem like they're getting. God, keep us safe. God, do something to help us get out of this trap. And their prayer is nothing like that. They immediately highlight God's character and lean specifically into God's sovereignty over their present circumstances. They know that God's sovereignty worked towards the cross, that Jesus was resurrected and ascended according to God's sovereignty. And now they're praying... uh, Ultimately, that whatever happens by God's hand and plan and was predestined to take place, right? That they see their present circumstances as somehow woven into God's plan for human history and plan for the advance of the gospel. And they don't run from what the Sanhedrin is throwing against them. They ask God for the strength to face their circumstances, trusting that as difficult as the circumstances are, they are the definite plan of God. And in fact, they specifically ask for two things. Right? They ask for boldness uh, to continue to speak, and they ask that God would continue to do miracles. And like both of those things sound pretty good on the face of it, but let's make sure that we consider the fact that the miracle and then the boldness to speak after the miracle is the thing that got them into the situation that they're in. If there wouldn't have been a healing, or probably even if Peter wouldn't have preached after the healing, they wouldn't have gone before the Sanhedrin, and they wouldn't be about to face a fierce persecution. But they ask God specifically to grant them more of what got them into their present circumstance. And when you think about that, I think it makes it very clear what's happening in Acts chapter 4. The contrast between the people of God, the people of Jesus Christ, and everybody else. Right? Like, as the Sanhedrin is introduced as a group, what is clearly, I think, driving them is a desire to hold on to what they have, right? Like, they have the power, they have the wealth, they see the church and the continued preaching in Jesus' name as a threat to what they have, and they're trying to do anything that they can do to stop it because it's a threat to what they have. And at the same time, you see this other group of people, the church, who as the situation has developed, recognizing that their boldness, these miracles, are the reason for their persecution. That's the reason the church is growing. That's what God and His sovereignty is using to draw people to Himself. And that if these things continue, it's going to get a lot worse. And they don't say, okay, God, like if you could cool it on the miracles a little bit, things won't get hot for us in Jerusalem. They ask God for more. Their priority is not clinging to what they have. Their priority is not their comfort. Their priority is not their ease. Their priority is not 
to avoid persecution. Their only priority, seemingly, is the continued advance of the gospel. They want to see the gospel progress. They want to see more people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And in that situation, they hold comfort, ease, the avoidance of persecution in an open hand and cling to the gospel's advance as their chief priority. I don't think if you would have pulled them, any one of them would have said, oh yeah, I really want persecution, bring it on. But if they have to choose between facing persecution, being opposed, and the advance of the gospel, they are absolutely choosing gospel advance. And God hears that request and answers it. The place is shaken, like shaken, like the divine affirmation, that's it. And they're further filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to be clear that this isn't like a second Pentecost. These people have the Holy Spirit. But I think when Luke's saying filled with the Holy Spirit, like God further grants his presence in a way that assures them that he is with them and empowers them to speak boldly. And like as you follow the contour of the narrative, and I think as you think about uh, where we're at in as a society, I think um, probably we all need to consider uh, the choices that we're making and the choices that we're going to be forced to make, because I think. Uh, I think that circumstances are going to be such that we're ultimately going to have to decide to react like one of these two groups. Whatever the circumstances are, I don't know. But I think we're all going to have to decide to act like one of these two groups. We are going to be people, as individuals and as a church, that decide that our comfort, our ease, uh, our avoiding opposition is a higher priority to us than anything else, and we'll act according to that. Or, as an individual and as groups, or as a group, we'll, we'll decide that the advance of the gospel is to us the highest priority, and we'll, I don't think any of us would object to comfort or ease, that when forced to choose, we will always choose the progress of the gospel over comfort or ease. And, <coughs> excuse me, and of course, I think it is our prayer, it is my exhortation to you that increasingly, consistently, that we are a church uh, filled with such a, the Spirit in such a way that we proclaim the gospel clearly and boldly, whatever it's going to cost us. That our passion for the progress of the gospel is our highest priority. And that increasingly, our lives as individuals and our life as a church reflect those priorities. That people could look at any one of us and look at all of us and see people that are clearly driven by a priority that is utterly unlike the world's and recognize that as the fruit of the gospel. 
are increasingly, I think, our congregational life has to be a reflection of the gospel. That uh, discomfort, opposition, even persecution, if it were to come to that, would not deter us from the commitment we have in Jesus Christ to see others come to know the grace that we've come to know. I, uh, I pray that we continue to be bold in that mission. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the work that you have done in Jesus Christ. God, we see ourselves daily as the beneficiaries of grace upon grace. God, we see your mercies are new each morning. And God, we pray that others would come to know you as we have, Lord, that others would see you as hope and life, and peace. God, we pray that you would find us uh, people ready to seize any opportunity that you give us for ministry, yet inflexible in our commitment to Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would continue to hold him out clearly as the only hope. And Lord, we pray that our voice in the wilderness would continue to draw others uh, to the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would make us bold in this task as we remind ourselves, God, that uh, you work through our faithfulness by the power of your Spirit to accomplish all that you've set out to do. God, it is for your glory and not for ours. Lord, we pray that you would build your church in Christ's name. Amen. Our benediction this morning is from Second Peter. Where we read, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, since we're waiting on these, we should be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish, and at peace, counting the patience of the Lord as our salvation and growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to that day in eternity. Amen. You are dismissed.